good to see each one of you this morning. I'm glad to be able to be here to share. And I don't know if you remember, before COVID, I would say that out of the five senses that I have, that my, my taste and my smell were probably at the top of the scale. You know, I had, I had a very good taster and a, a really good sniffer. But when COVID hit me um, for the first time back in 2019, I lost my sense of taste and I lost my sense of smell. And to be honest with you, um, I have really not got them back to where they were uh, before COVID. You know, I, there's there's some things that I can taste, and there's other things that I just really can't taste. So, but I was one who sometimes would much rather enjoy my calories in a drink than maybe in food. I am a, a, unfortunately a soda fiend. I, that's my downfall. But the second choice of beverage that I would would choose over anything else is chocolate milk. How many of you like chocolate milk? Yeah, okay, so so you got some of you are with me on that one then. I must say though that I like my cold drinks really cold and my hot drinks really hot. How about you? Um, there have been times when I would put a drink of soda up to my mouth and take a big gulp and it was lukewarm and I just wanted to spit it out. It's like, where the heck did that come from? Um, but milk for me is really bad that way. If I'm drinking milk, I, I like it just below freezing. Okay. <laughs> That's the way I like my milk or I'm, I'm just going to spit it out. I remember one time, um, and the, I have the question here is, have you ever got something in your mouth? that you just wanted to remove as quickly as possible. I remember this was back a few years ago. We had a half a gallon of milk left in the refrigerator, okay? And there was about that much left in it. So why use a cup? <laughs> so, so I grabbed that thing out and took the lid off, and I went like this. And when I got it about in my mouth and halfway down my throat, I realized that it was sour, bad. <laughs> And so, um, needless to say, I was spitting everywhere, <laughs> trying to get that stuff out of my mouth, and and didn't realize because I didn't smell it, couldn't smell it that well. And so when I got it, I could tell. And <laughs> there was one time also that I was eating cereal, and I said, "Man, this cereal tastes really funny." And I, it, it, it dawned on me about halfway through eating that cereal that I was eating that cereal with sour milk. It was the milk. It wasn't the cereal that was bad. It was the milk. So, But I guess I think about this, and I think about, have you ever thought about what Jesus might want to spit out of his mouth? Have you ever thought about that? You know, I get the feeling that there are some things that we do that Jesus just wants to spit them out of his mouth. Mm. You know, maybe Jesus expects um, a higher level of commitment from his followers, and and all he gets is this mediocre commitment at best. So what does he do? He wants to just spit. Um, maybe Jesus expects praise and worship, and sometimes all he gets is us grumbling and complaining. 
Are you a grumbler, a complainer? I know sometimes I am. I hate that, but I am. And all Jesus wants to do is spit. Maybe Jesus expects close fellowship among disciples, um, but here's nothing but backbiting and, and shallowness. And all he wants to do is spit. So I guess how, how often does the Lord come expecting one thing but receive something totally different from us? You know, I like a very cold or a very hot drink, but I do not like anything that's lukewarm. Not really. And I think that, you know, when, when I get something like that, the only thing that I want to do is just spit it out of my mouth. And so we come to the end of a long route in the book of Revelation. We're going to um, talk about this passage here today, and then next Sunday I'm going to wrap it all up with uh, one last message on, on um, what all this means for us. But we come to the end of a route. It's a long route. And, and so we leave the church at Philadelphia. If you remember last week, we talked about the church at Philadelphia, which was the, probably the greatest church on the whole route. He had nothing bad to say about that church, but all good. And so we travel 45 miles southeast from Philadelphia, and we come to the city of Laodicea, a place called Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was founded in the 3rd century B.C. by Antichus II, and it was named, he, he named the city after his wife, Laodicea. And so it was, a, it was a place that I would say had four major attributes. The first one was wealth. It was, it was the major banking center, and it was probably home to back then what we would consider the millionaires. That's where we live up in, uh, we have our home up in Williamsport there. It's the home of the millionaires. Because back in the logging days, there were houses that were built back in the, in the back of the city there that were all million dollar homes. They were just absolutely fantastic. But that's what Laodicea was. It was the home of major banking. It was also the home of many millionaires. But commercialism was another thing that was a, a major attribute. It was famous for black wool garments. And those black wool garments were extremely expensive. Absolutely extremely expensive. And so... But it was also um, known for its medicine. You know, they had what we call the, the school of medicine, and they had developed an eye salve which supposedly cured all kinds, various eye inflammations. And then the last thing was hot springs. Now, I'm not completely sure about this one. I was talking to Christy about this earlier. I'm not sure if the hot springs were in the city, if they were outside the city, or if they were closer to Heriopolis, but, but they were also known for those. You know, outside the town, they had these, these mineral springs, mineral water. And, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. So with, with all this, Laodicea was the probably out of the, all the churches on the route, they were probably the, the wealthiest, but also the worst of the seven cities to whom Jesus writes to. Absolutely the worst. You know, forget saving the best for last. Jesus did just the opposite. He saves the worst for last. See, the downward spiral that began at Ephesus and continued through Pergamum, Thyatira, 
And Sardis reaches rock bottom at the city of Laodicea. Even the church at Sardis, remember the church at Sardis? When Jesus called the people there spiritually dead, even they had some true believers left in the church there. But as far as we can tell, the church at Laodicea was, was, was totally unregenerate, counterfeit church. And Jesus has absolutely nothing positive in his letter to say to them. Absolutely nothing in the letter. Rather, um, so because he has nothing to say to them, rather this this is by far probably... I would say probably the most condemning and, and critical of the seven churches and, and this, the, the letter that he's going to write to them is, is pretty rough. So we're going to hear one last time what Jesus had to say to the church at Laodicea. So I've asked Dan to come this morning and he is going to open up the letter, going to grab it from that mailbox that we've been using for the last several weeks and he is going to read us the letter to the church at Laodicea. You got to look, there you go. <laughs> no postage. <laughs> You'd think there'd be a Caesar stamp on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is some Greek lettering on there. <laughs> yeah. Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, I share. To the angel of the Lord in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one, either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God's love be made complete in us. Sincerely, the Apostle John. Thank you. So before getting into what um, we would consider his criticism and condemnation of this church, Jesus, once again, as he has in just about every single one of his letters to the different churches, he begins his letter by sharing his credentials um, with them, telling them exactly who he is to them. And so Jesus opens his letter 
once again, and what he does is he, he shares three key phrases identifying himself and the authority that he has to be able to write this letter to them. Because he has that authority to be able to write that letter to them. And so this is what he says. First, he, 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 Jesus refers to himself as the Amen, the Amen. You know, this, this is actually the only place in the Bible that this word Amen is used as a title. Notice what it says. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen. That's what he says there. This word, Amen, means more than just, it's more than just the ending of a prayer. We always say, you know, in the name of Jesus, Amen, you know, we, when we use our prayers. But it's more than just the ending of a prayer. It's actually, this word actually means, so be it, or let it be done. Did you know that? So be it. And that's what, that's what our prayers are saying. Let it be done. So be it. You know, it was an affirmation of something true and binding. That's what that word means. Something true and binding. So when Jesus says that he is the amen, the amen, he's not saying, I'm the punctuation at the conclusion of a prayer. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying is that he is the one who sees things through. Try to say that ten times real fast. Sees things through. Who is true, who is certain, who is firm, who is unchanging. That's who Jesus is saying that he is. More than that, it reminds us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and the answer to every prayer. Paul told us in Corinthians, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Hmm. Second of all, Jesus calls himself not just the amen, but he also calls himself the faithful and true witness. Notice there it says, to the angel of the Lord, to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen. Then he says, the faithful and true witness. And I think that this phrase really supports the previous one. Once again, Jesus is saying that he can be counted on. He can be counted on. If he's saying something, claims something, or, or he promises something, you can know that it's going to come true, that it's going to be true. He is completely trustworthy. He is perfectly accurate. And his testimony is always reliable. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior. He can be counted on. He can be trusted because he is true. Jesus Christ is the one who said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one's going to come to the Father except through me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus. That's our Jesus. And then finally... Jesus says, not only is he the amen and the faithful and true witness, but he says this. He says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, he says that. He says, and unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and the true witness, 
the beginning of the of the creation of God. That is the King James, the New King James version of the Bible. That I, but I wanted to quote that for you there because this translation has been a little misleading for people at times, and that that's why I wanted to point it out because it has been when translated like this as it is in the New King James Version of the Bible, what it looks like, if you look at that right there, what it looks like or what it sounds like is that Jesus is saying that he was the first thing that God created, thus the beginning of God's creation. And if that were true, if that were completely true, then Jesus isn't really eternal at all. Therefore, he couldn't be equal with God the Father. He could not do that. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The Good News Bible, I think, is actually a better translation. It says, it says, the origin of all that God has created. That's the Good News translation. The God's Word translation puts it like this. He is the source of God's creation. But I also like what the NIV says. It says that he is the ruler of God's creation. He is the ruler over a thing. You know, and so, so Jesus, what he's doing is he is reiterating what John said to him about him way back in, in John chapter one. He says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Who is the word? It's Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So you can see that, that, that conflict there if we took that translation from the, the New King James Version. And so, but that's not what Paul, that's not what, um, John said, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. I think it also follows what Paul said about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It says this. The Son of, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what Paul says. So not only is Jesus faithful and true, not only is he firm, reliable, and unchanging, he is also the creator of all things. That's what he is. And he is the source from which the whole universe leaped into existence. He created that. If you remember back in Genesis, when he says, let us create man in our image, there was a, there was a triune God at that point in time too. Because there's always been a triune God. And so... Many of the Christians at Laodicea, I think, may have been influenced by an agnostic teaching. And that Gnostic teaching, what did it teach? It teached, the, 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 well, basically they denied the preexistence of Christ. They, they taught that he was a created being just like everybody else, just like you and me. That's what they taught. And it may have been this very teaching that led the church in Laodicea to, to the corrupt condition that, that Jesus finds it in now. That's why 
Folks, that is why it is so important that your leaders make sure that those things aren't taught in church, that things aren't taught in Sunday school, that things aren't taught in Wednesday night Bible study that aren't true to Scripture. That's a big responsibility for the leaders of the church, but it's so important for us to make sure that the truth is being taught. So whatever it was that got them started in the wrong direction, Jesus has some really scathing criticism for the church at Laodicea. I mean, he, he comes down on pretty rough here. And this is what he has to save them. Notice what it says in, in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 here. It says this. It says, I know your deeds. How often has he said that in every single one of the letters? I think just about every single one of them he said that. What does that say into us? He knows you. He knows us. He knows your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. Remember we talked about that, hot and cold. I wish you were either one or the other. Well, I wish you were either hot or cold, because then at least I know where you would stand. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So, the NIV says, I know your deeds. You know, in, in the, the New Living Translation, Jesus says this. He says, I know all the things that you do. God knows everything that you do. You can try to hide it from your wife or your husband. You can try to hide it from your kids. You can try to hide it from your friends. It doesn't matter. God knows what we do. Everything that we do. He knows the thoughts of our hearts. He knows the actions. He, he sees it all. He knows it all. And the amazing thing about that is he still loves us. Jesus begins with their works because it is by our works that we demonstrate the faith that is within us. But you know what? This is a balance that I think a lot of Christians struggle to understand. I think we all struggle to understand this. The Bible teaches unequivocally that we are saved by grace through faith at the occasion of our baptism. I believe that. The two visible elements working together, the, this grace and this faith. However, the evidence or the proof of our salvation is found where? It's found in what we do. It's found in our works. It's found in our deeds. All those visible things, that's found in those things. However, we need to be really careful. We know that we are not saved by our works, but it is the proof that we are growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, there are so many, there are so many different passages that Jesus talks about that, that, that concept of growing in our relationship with him. You know, if, you, if you've ever wondered whether or not you are truly saved, whether you have genuinely been born again, do what the Apostle Paul says to do. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That is a good thing for us to do, to examine ourselves. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you failed the test? So that's so important for us to, to be able to examine ourselves 
you know, to test ourselves, to see where we stand in our faith. And I, I tried to do that at the beginning of the year. I, like I said to you before, I don't write resolutions anymore because on January the 1st at about uh, 8 o'clock in the evening, I've already failed at least three or four of them. But what I try to do is I try to look at my this past year and, and kind of project what I would hope to be able to accomplish in the, in the next year. And so I write down goals of things that I would like to do, where I would like to be. I think that's important for us because I think what that does for us is that it helps us to build our relationship with him, continuing to build our relationship with him. And so I, I, I think that that's really important for each one of us to, to be able to do that. And so um, we need to examine ourselves. We need to test ourselves. Jesus also puts it this way. You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount? He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, no, that doesn't happen. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, they will be recognized. Do you understand that, that last part there in verse 19? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you know what that's a reference to? That's right. It's a reference to hell. That's how important it is. That's how important it is for us to bear good fruit. At the occasion of our baptism, when we're forgiven of our sins and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's when we start growing in our relationship with the Lord. And maybe you have been growing in that relationship even before that, but it's brought you to that point where you you have to make a decision then. And so those works continue to, to help us to grow in, in our faith, but it also helps us to grow in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we really need to be careful. My guess is the folks in Laodicea had stopped examining their own fruit. I think they had fallen from true faith and, and didn't even realize it. And sometimes maybe that's the case for us that we don't even realize it. You know, they, they were Christians in name only, but not in any other way. How many of you have ever heard the word uh, genericide? Anybody hear the word genericide? It's what happens when a product becomes so common that the name becomes synonymous with any cheap version of the original. For example, if you go to a restaurant in the South... And I use that because I'm from the South. If you go to a restaurant in the South and you ask for a Coke, the waitress is probably going to ask you what kind. The word Coke is used to refer to any caramel-colored soft drink, no matter what, whether it belongs to the Coca-Cola company or it belongs to the Pepsi company or whoever it belongs to. For me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to always ask for Pepsi. That's just, that's just I like Pepsi better. 
Same thing can happen when you say, could you hand me a Kleenex? Even if the box is clearly labeled from Dollar General, it says Dollar General brand facial tissue, you know, a brand name that once referred to a specific product is now used for any old generic reproduction, genericide. That's what that word means. But you know what? Let's take that word a step further. I believe the same thing happened to Christianity. For you see, this is really hard. The word Christian originally referred to a person who is a genuine believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone whose life has been unmistakably changed by the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his indwelling spirit that we receive at the occasion of our baptism. But you know what? Today, and, and, and maybe even most likely in ancient Laodicea as well, the word Christian is used to refer to anyone who might show up to church maybe once a year. We used to always call them the CE people. They were the Christian, or they were the Christmas and Easter people. <laughs> that's about, that's about the, the size of it. You know, anyone who claims some generic form of religion loosely related to Jesus. And I can guarantee that almost, if not more, and you know, this is a judgment I'm making here, but I'm saying half the people in this country who claim to be Christians have no concept of what the word really means and the life that Jesus expects those who claim his name to live. See, to Jesus, there is nothing more disgusting than a half-hearted, in-name-only Christian who doesn't truly follow him at all. They only want to use the name. That's it. I know that because of what Jesus says next. He says in verse 16, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The New King James Version puts it a little bit more grosser. Is that a word, grosser? It says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. How many of you have ever thrown up in your mouth before? Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the first thing you want to do is try to get to a toilet or a sink or something so you can get it out of your mouth. But, you know, it happens every once in a while. And it's gross. It's really gross, isn't it? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. The Message Bible puts it this way. It says, you're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. Hey, you know what? There could be a rap song in that. <laughs> I think there, there, might, there might just be a rap song in that somewhere there. I don't think, I don't think that Jesus could get any more blunt with us than that, could he? I don't think he's getting any more blunt with us than that. A lot of people, even myself, I believe at times have misunderstood this passage. They think Jesus is talking about straddling the fence, Christians, who haven't fallen away, but they aren't on fire for Jesus anymore. But I don't think that's what lukewarm means. You see, Laodicea had a water problem. 
You know what the water problem was? They didn't have any. <laughs> that, then that can be a real problem, can it? Imagine your house with no water. That can be a problem. And so they didn't have any, they didn't have any water. And so they had to pipe it in from Heriopolis by underground aqueducts. And Heriopolis had hot mineral springs. So as the water traveled roughly six miles to Laodicea, what would happen is it would cool off just slightly. It would cool off a little bit. From Laodicea, the aqueduct would carry the water on south to Colossae. So by the time the water reached Colossae, it was refreshingly cold. But at Laodicea, the water had become lukewarm, possibly spoiled, have impure minerals in it. And if left sitting, it cultivated bacteria that would cause you to have diarrhea and vomiting. So if you think about it from the standpoint of what Jesus is saying here, if the water had been hot like in Heriopolis or cold like in Colossae, it would have been good and and useful for something. But as it was, this water was, was tepid, it was disgusting, and somewhat useless. Just like the so-called Christians at Laodicea had become. Hmm. You know, the believers didn't take a stand for, for anything indifferent. You know, and, and they were, they, they, it, it all led to uh, idleness. You know, they had, they had been, uh, changed by Jesus' amazing grace, or they, they had been, but, they could have been, but they, they, they chose to refuse that. And so by neglecting to do anything for Christ, what happened was the church had become hardened, they had become self-satisfied, and it was destroying itself within. And as a result, Jesus told them, you, you just make me want to vomit. You know, I, I just need to spit you out of my mouth. Think about that. The Son of God saying those words to the church there. Part of the problem, I think, was that they were living comfortably in Laodicea. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 17 there. He says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, Blind and naked. Wow. You know, what this boils down to is to that, that, that they trusted themselves and their money more than they trusted Jesus. I've, I think I've shared this about my friend Bill. I had a friend who was a youth minister. Um, his name was Bill, Bill Baumgartner. And he and I would often meet at PCTC. We were involved in PCTC and the, 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 high, the upper workings of the president, vice president, all that kind of stuff. And we would, we would spend time together. And he told me he had left Lock Haven and he went out to Pittsburgh. And so he became the youth, youth minister in an affluent neighborhood. And the church was near Pittsburgh and it was in the North Hill section. So if you know where the, the North Hill section of Pittsburgh is, it's a pretty affluent place. And this is what he told me. He told me that his greatest issue in that youth group was convincing those youth that they needed Jesus because they had everything else that they needed because they were so rich. 
Well, the church at Laodicea was was self-reliant, self-centered, self-indulgent. Their lives didn't revolve around Jesus, period. They, They revolved around themselves. But while they may have had all sorts of physical blessings, spiritually, he's telling them there, they were wretched, they were poor, they were, they were pitiful and poor and blind and naked. So, so based on this massive criticism that Jesus gives to the church there, he then issues them a command. So what is the result? What is it that Jesus tells them? Notice what it says. <clears throat> he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to to put on your eyes so you can see. That's what he tells them. I think that there are, are a lot of insider references in this verse. Jesus begins by talking about gold refined by fire. And I believe that that is a reference to spiritual wealth that comes only when faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been refined by fire and it's found trustworthy. You know, Laodicea was also famous for developing this special black dye that they used in in their wool. The wealthiest of people from all over the empire would place their, their orders you know, from Laodicea for this rich black wool. It was extremely expensive, and only the upper-tier people could buy it. The town had become very wealthy by selling garments made from this wool. And Jesus tells them then, it's interesting how they they were the makers of this black wool, and then Jesus goes to the opposite end of that, you know, the other polar end of it, and he says this, he says, he, he talks about buying the white wool, You know, Jesus tells them to purchase white wool from him because white is a symbol of purity, of righteousness. He wanted them to trust him, to clothe them rather than to trust in their own riches and their own wealth. And that's what Jesus wanted to do for them. So he's given them a chance here. See, Laodicea was also well known for an eye ointment that they had invented that was said to cure several different eye irritations. And again, they they had become wealthy and famous for selling this medicine and curing people's blindness. I mean, who wouldn't want to go there if you're blind and, and, and try that out? Yet spiritually, they were the blind ones. Jesus wanted them to buy medicine from him so that they might truly see. The, the message is the same either way. They had to stop trusting in themselves and their money. And they needed to start trusting in Jesus. That's what they needed to do. They couldn't see past themselves. And they were fooling themselves if they thought that the, the lives that they were leading were pleasing to God. That's why he says to them, you know, pitiful and wretched. You know, and so they, they and here's the thing, though. We need to understand that these people weren't bad people. They weren't bad people. You know, they weren't out partying like some of these other churches we were talking about at pagan festivals or worshiping false gods. 
They weren't drunks or, or gluttons. You know, they were, they were nice, well-mannered people for the most part. They, they were good people that probably never bothered anyone. But just like American Christianity today, I think what they had, ha- had what happened to them was that they had been lulled into a false sense of security and embraced a generic brand of Christianity that taught them to pat themselves on the back for going to church because they had done their good deed for the week. And I hope and pray that you don't come here to church at Cornerstone or anywhere else that you might go and feel like you've done your good deed for the week because that's not what it's all about. You know that. It's not what it's all about. Maybe they believed that God was lucky to have them in their big tithe check every week. We need to be giving to the Lord out of our own hearts because that's what we want to do. Out of our own hearts. You see, Satan doesn't want to convince Christians to go out and party and live immoral lives. That's, that's blatantly obvious, isn't it? You can see that. He doesn't want that. He wants you to keep your old-fashioned values and keep on going to church every week just so long as you never realize just how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked you really are. As long as you don't notice that. Because that is when, when you start realizing those things, that is when you realize that you need a Savior. Every single one of us needs a Savior. That's when our eyes are open to just how amazing Jesus' grace really is. It is not until we discover the wretchedness within us, within ourselves, that we will discover just how amazing our Savior is. Amen? So the good news is, no matter how disgusted Jesus is by this self-centered, self-deceptive brand of Christianity, the good news is is that he still loves them. He still loves them. He assures the church at Laodicea this in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You know, in other words, I'm saying this because I love you. That's what he's telling them. And see, the same goes for each one of us as well. For those of us who have been tricked into thinking that a self-absorbed sainthood is what makes Jesus smile, you know, we, like the church in Laodicea, we need to repent from that. We need to repent. It doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around Jesus. We need to make our lives entirely about Jesus. We need to be Jesus-centered, Jesus-reliant, Jesus-absorbed. Let me ask you a question. That statement there, we need to make our lives entirely about Jesus. Are our lives entirely about Jesus? When you leave this building, how much do you talk about Jesus? How often do we refer to Jesus in our workplace? in our homes, in our neighborhoods? 
how often do we talk about Jesus when we're standing in the line at grocery store, you know, um, just talking to the, the cashier? I think we need to make our lives about Jesus. We need to open our eyes to the spiritual condition of our hearts and turn to Jesus once again. We need to be turning to him for everything to find our meaning, our purpose, and our happiness and our treasure that is in him. I want to have the band come on forward right now. I want to ask you some questions. Where is your trust? In what or whom do you place your trust in? Have you, have you allowed things to lure you away from your relationship with Jesus? You know, the next question is, what is the authority of your life? What is the authority of your life? Is it people or money or material things? What is it? What place does the Bible or the Word of God have in your life? Think about that. How do you rate your commitment to the Lord and to His church? Do you love Jesus enough to obey Him? Do you maintain an excitement and a fervor about Jesus and His bride, the church? Is is God and His kingdom a top priority for you? Where does Jesus stand at this point in your life? Where does he stand? Is he at home in your heart? Or is he standing outside the door knocking to come in? But you know there's no door handle there. It's only open from the inside. I want to leave you today with the same invitation that Jesus left the church at Laodicea. A personal, individual invitation for every man woman and child in the words of Jesus he says this he says here I am I stand at the door and I knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him with with that person and they will and they with me to the one who is victorious I will give the right to sit with me on the throne Can you imagine to be able to sit with him on the throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on the throne? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear the Spirit, what the Spirit says to the churches. As we stand and we sing, will you hear the voice and will you open?